right, BTP listeners. I don't know about you guys. I could live without fish more easily than I could live without caffeine. I'm not proud of it. There's a literal film over my brain until I swig that first cup in the morning, usually followed by four other cups throughout the day. It's not a cheap hobby. Until recently, I was a Grady skeptic, but now I am a full-blown believer in the power of Grady's cold brew. Order online and get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. We'll save you a ton of money, also a ton of time. You won't have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from your fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for your perfect cup. There's going to be a literal bag of New Orleans-style cold brew in your fridge that comes from a spigot. The only thing that's missing is the second-line brass band and powdery beignets. Given that things are getting a bit colder here on the East Coast, there's also the option to brew it hot. Brady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. Type in BTP20 and you get 20% off. I love this stuff. In fact, I think I'm going to go have some Grady's Cold Brew right now. Let's face it, having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sinlawn comes in. Sinlawn is environmentally friendly. There's no watering, no use of pesticide products, no mowing, it's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sinlaw uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. And they have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and cl- certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and, and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond that's s-y-n-l-a-w-n.com slash beyond get along you can be proud of all the time be proud of your neighborhood don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea or even better up your short game in a major way your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you sinlawn
Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 110 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast where, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands, because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. They only pay attention to their favorite band, the Fish from Vermont, to the exclusion of all other musical acts out there. While that may seem impressive to your fishy friends, to the rest of the world, it's kind of sad. So, we're trying to do something about it. We are. And uh, thank you for joining us here in part three of the Osiris Pod deep dive into November 1995. We are following excellent episodes from Under the Scales and the Helping Friendly podcast as we discuss probably the best jam of the month of November 1995 and one of the best fish jams of all time, while also utilizing this jam to discuss some of our favorite bands, some of our favorite artists, new music that we think that you should be listening to. You know the drill. You've been here before. You've heard so many of these episodes Um, today, tonight, wherever you're listening to this, whenever you're listening to this, we are covering the Stash, Manteca, Stash, Dogface Boy, Stash, the massive Stash sandwich from November 14th, 1995 at, I believe, Central University of Central Florida in Orlando. UCF, yeah. UCF in Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida. People at the Magic Kingdom that night felt that they were possessed by a force because they didn't realize what was going on down the road. When you were waiting in line for Space Mountain, you may have felt something special, knowing that something else entirely was going on at Orlando, Florida. But we're not here to talk Disney. We're here to uh, talk some stash, and some of the themes that you're going to hear about in this episode include the quiet part, loud, coming to you live from Florida, and the build-up to December of 1995. And on that note, let's get to the fish. All right. So, why are we talking about the massive 39-minute stash from November 14th, 1995, Orlando, Florida? Haven't we talked about enough fall 1995? (laughs) Never. You can never talk about enough fall 1995. It's probably the greatest tour the band has ever embarked upon, and this is one of those reasons why. So we have circled this jam a lot over the years. It's kind of been thrown around in text messages here and there. Hey, maybe we should cover the stash from November 14th, 1995. Uh, We'll put it off for a little bit later. We've kind of resisted it for some reason. It might have been too much. It might have been too big. I don't know. Until now. This is a monstrosity. It's a statement and a showcase of a band at the peak of their powers, pushing their creative bounds and communicating with each other and their audience with such openness that it demands respect. 
We don't throw around this term lightly, but this is absolutely a top 10 fish jam of all time. One of the most stunning things about the jam is just how Trey sounds ready to jam from note one as he rushes into the stash theme and plays with various breakdowns and themes within the song, all while barely hanging on vocally. The second they finish the final, maybe so, maybe not, they're off. And at the shift to Manteca, you hear the fall 1997 bubbling up. The contemplation into Dogface Boy is some of the prettiest music that they've ever made. The swirl from Dogface Boy to Stash is harrowing and a proper conclusion to a jam of its caliber. And kind of the three things that stand out the most here are the breadth, the ground covered, the diversity, the music explored, and just the melodicism that's displayed throughout. And this is definitely not a summer 1995 40-plus minute space camp journey, as it really has a lot more in common with the fall 1997 as opposed to just five months prior. Also... Makeshift drum kitting. This uh, comes out best on the video, and this uh, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. But around the 15-minute mark, Trey just starts beating the heck out of this little mini drum kit he has next to Paige's rig, and it almost ends up being the genesis of the not-so-awesome percussion jams that were dotted in the uh, summer of uh, 2016. This is much cooler. It is, and just a note that you made there that I, I, I really find important. Um, it's really crazy in hindsight to think that they learned and absorbed the lessons of Summer 1995 so quickly. Like, I love Summer 1995, but I also see it as a, essentially a, a stepping stone towards larger uh, musical brilliance. And they were able to apply these lessons of risk-taking, experimentation, just wildly in front of a paying audience into on-the-fly songwriting so, so well. Also, this is far from the only time that Fish employs quiet, melodic space to buttress very loud jamming on this tour. The Mike Song second jam portions from November 15th, as well as the November 21st version, immediately come to mind. Yeah, in many ways, this kind of feels like the capstone moment as the band realizes their ability to stretch the music out beyond what previously was thought possible and really kind of the on-the-fly songwriting that would define so much of the late 90s and Fish 3.0 jamming. And visually, it's a treat for the eyes, man. I mean, have you guys seen this? It's readily available on YouTube. Um, I don't know if it's pro shot, but it's very high quality. You got Trey with his short hair. He's got the bright orange stripe pants he wore on Letterman. He's got like the classic mid-1995 uh, Trey Black tank top. And he overemphasizes every single break in the song. It's like he's looking at his guitar like, holy shit, my guitar does this? My God. <laughs> There's like some dance and unisons with Mike. I mean, there may be versions of Stash you love more, but I'm not sure that there's any versions that the band love more just in the moment. I mean, it's seldom so fun to watch Fitch play a song. So now you have your homework. is just going to YouTube on your smart TV and just down this up. I mean, he kind of... Trey looks like a burnt-out Floridian college kid. He's playing to the audience. He is. He is. And, uh, you know, to to what you were saying, like the joy that the band showcases, especially the song portion of the song, of the jam and as they lead into the Manteca jam. I mean, it's just uncanny. And it it sounds in so many ways like the music that we're about to hear from Fish. If, if you've ever listened to an extended run through Fall 1995 and... Uh, I'll plug our 
uh, Osiris friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Rob Mitchum, co-host of the 36 from the Vault podcast, who is uh, currently writing uh, about every single fish show on its 25th anniversary, which if you know that 1995 was 25 years ago as uh, where we sit right now. He is currently tracking through fall 1995. And, um, you know, I, w- I would highly, highly recommend uh, listening to, or um, subscribing to his Substack. We'll post it in our show notes. But as, as he notes throughout kind of the early onset of the tour, the band had kind of a hard time as they were going west to east, settling into a groove. And sometime around uh, probably Lincoln, Nebraska, we'll, we'll talk about this here in a second when we chart the tour, they would settle into a massive groove. And then there's a ton of highlights that follow. But when you hear this stash, like the thing people think about when they think about 1995 is December. And it's these big arena rock jams that are all situated around a singular theme that the band just kind of like repeats and builds and it's infectious and it just like it's danceable. It's rocking as well. It's so different from the type of music that they played two years from then, but uh, just as infectious and groovy. And you hear it for really like one of the first times in this stash, just overemphasized. Um, So what we wanted to do here was talk through some comparable versions of Stash as well, because Stash is one of those songs, it's probably one of the most important songs in Fish's catalog, from a songwriting standpoint, at least musically. It's a massive accomplishment, um, I believe, and we'll have to confirm this with our friend Tom Marshall. I believe that he is slightly embarrassed by these lyrics. I feel like I've heard that before. Um, they are just crazy, like, you know, wild storytelling very late 80s early 90s fish but stash especially at this point really served a purpose as like a dive into the netherworld the same way that mike's did same way that tweezer always does the same way that bowie did split open and melt so on and so forth so that said there are a number of excellent type 2 versions of stash but there is nothing quite like this. So we wanted to dive into a few versions that we recommend you listen to if you have not heard them and if you like this version of Stash. Dave, why don't you kick us off with the first couple? So March 30th, 1993, from Eugene, Oregon. Kind of the first truly Type 2 Stash. Very cool. Can't you hear me knocking jam? Stones. Of course, uh, the tour closer from that year in spring, May 8th, 1993, from University of New Hampshire in Durham. Classic, classic, classic show. Stash Kung. Stash. And then one of my personal favorites, uh, August 15th, 1993, from Louisville, Kentucky. This is a masterpiece. Around like 11 minutes, Trey starts playing what could almost be the genesis of like an entirely different fish song. It's got, feels like it has a melody. If it was an Umphreys McGee show, it would be turned into a stew that would surface in other songs. That is uh, something extremely well worth hearing. So jumping ahead a couple of years, uh, July 2nd, 1997 from Amsterdam. It's a 30-minute monster with one of the most beautiful segments of improv in any fish jam. Leads into a four-song second set. And then uh, our final version... December 31st, 2003 from Miami. This is kind of your quiet antidote to the Orlando version from eight years prior. Really subtle uh, jamming that comes out of the band as they open up set two of their New Year's Eve show. And just for a really recent stash, the tour opener from summer 2019 from St. Louis 
First set. Good Excellent call. stash. One of like the best 3.0 stashes. Just melodic and really, really. I forget the day yeah. at the top of my head. I want to say it's June 11th. June okay. 11th, yeah. And they they played some really good stashes in summer 2012 or summer 2019. Excuse me. It was one of those songs that really just like perked up as like a great little moment for the band uh, during that period. It was an underrated two night run. It was a really good June 11th. It was a good tour opener. And then the second night was the famous Stanley Cup show. So yeah, Stanley Cup show with an excellent yes. second set. So stepping back a little bit broadly here, talking about the show and the overall run itself. So November 14th, 1995 is a classic fall 1995 show in a lot of ways. Set one, you've got Chalk Dust Foam as a killer one-two punch to open up the show. A solid, and I say this just because it's 1995, come on, a solid Divided Sky, uh, a Raging Julius in a tour where pretty much every Julius was raging, some Bluegrass, Cavern, out. That's it. That's what you got. It's a good, good, solid 1995 set one. The second set, narrative and high quality, especially kind of an era where set two still didn't have much of a narrative arc that we're used to seeing nowadays. You've got a fiery, fiery maze. Then you've got this gigantic stash sandwich that we're talking about today. And then as the You Enjoy Myself into Immigrant Song, back into You Enjoy Myself. So, very little not to like. No, it's a great, great show. Um, This was officially released by Live Fish. I want to say in like 2006 or 2007, um, I could be wrong about that, but I definitely remember this was one of those shows that when it was released, this was back at a time when like few shows would be released. It was very limited in terms of when it would happen. And I remember seeing this show being released and being like, wow, I haven't listened to fish in months. I should probably check them out. And hearing a fall 1995 show with a jam like this, I was just like, man, this is why no matter what happened after Coventry, no matter the fact I haven't listened to Fish in however long at this point in time, like they're still my favorite. Always running back. It's great. Always come running back in ways like that. So this is uh, the fifth show of the second leg of the fall 1995 tour. Following Halloween, the band took a week off before restarting in Atlanta, and it's the second of four shows in their mini Florida run. It's easily the best show of the run and a true turning point for the tour, which would only grow in momentum as the band turned northwards towards the northeast region and December. About a month prior, as they moved through the southwest and into the midwestern leg of their three-month tour, the band began to hit a groove and coalesce around a few themes that would guide them to what I humbly consider their greatest run of all time, the December 1995 shows. I mean, it's interesting, at least in my mind, for as good as it is, November 1995 kind of seems to get slightly overlooked. I think largely because the first two things that come to mind when the man on the street says, fall 1995, is Quadrophenia and then December. It's kind of like why nobody seems to care about college football in New Jersey because it's wedged between New York <laughs> City and Philadelphia. So who gives a fuck about Rutgers when you can root for the Giants or the Eagles? So also, I mean, fall 1995 actually wasn't this good from the jump. Like the first three weeks or so, though not train wrecky in the slightest, are kind of the definition of Somewhat forgettable fish, light on the jams, heavy on them, trying to figure out what to do with the Billy Breed songs. 
I mean, I think your mileage may vary on the um, Medeski Martin Wood sit-ins I did in Texas and Louisiana, which had the effect of like quadrupling MMW's fan base among hippies. But um, <laughs> I think generally the tour didn't really kick in the high gear until uh, October 21st, 1995 from Nebraska. Generally, fire from there on out up until Halloween. I think uh, October 24th, 1995 from Madison might have my favorite antelope of all time. And then... The next night, the uh, Mike's and the Breathe is one of my favorite yes, channels that's of all amazing. time. And then once you get to the Fox Theater run, starting November 9th, 1995, you kind of start to marvel at how the band is not only playing up-tempo and DNA coil tight, but how they get all of the little things right. There's like... One starts to notice random goodies, like on that show, when the final chord of Tila magically morphs into the opening chord of Sample in the Jar with Zero Break, kind of like the dead doing like Alabama Getaway and the greatest story ever told. Just like the level of confidence in playing is off the charts. I think maybe with the possible exception of November 24th from Pittsburgh, the 28th from Knoxville, Tennessee, Fishman channeling Bette Midler at that show notwithstanding. Every single show has a moment or several that will leave your jaw on the floor. And uh, if that's your kind of thing on November 16th in Florida for the Encore Dream, Buffett came out and sang <laughs> Brown Eyed Girl. So there was no election in fall of 1995, which was probably a good thing so that the nation's attention could be focused solely on the destruction that Fish yeah. was wielding across the especially southeast and the northeastern corridor as they worked their way from Atlanta, Georgia, down into Florida, and then back up to uh, the central uh, time zone and then back over to the Northeast. So we want to track for you what we consider our big highlights for November 1995. And there are many. So get a pen, get some paper out. You know how this works. We're going to go through them. Speed round here, but we want to give you guys a sense of kind of what we recommend you listening to. So kicking things off in the three-night run in Atlanta, November 9th, through the 11th November 9th has a tweezer reprise opener second time that they would do that in three weeks a bathtub gin that is fantastic and is a precursor to the excellent bathtub gins that we would hear in December um, thinking specifically of December I believe it's fourth or fifth whichever one from Amherst I'm blanking on the exact date uh, I think the I think fifth. It's the fifth. I think you're right. It's also got the unbelievable fucking hairy hood. Unbelievable hood, and then the uh, the real gin that you would hear later in the in the um, the month. Uh, and November 9th has a Yem Crossroads Yem. They were really into uh, slotting a classic rock song into "You Enjoy Myself" during this tour. And then November 11th has a huge first set mics. And uh, a really solid overall set list. Like you've got really interesting oddities like kind of Bowie, Antelope, Fluffhead is somewhere in there. It's it's just, it's a fantastic kind of classic greatest hits type of show. Everything about the, the uh, run is incredibly solid and fun. And hey, Kevin Shapiro, just kind of paging you. This would make a great box set someday. And that's the Bafto Gin where Trey starts playing Rift and then says, fuck it. And just goes back to Bafto Gin. Always a good call in the second set. Right, yeah, it's not like a bathtub, it's not like a riff tease. It's like the rift riff. Right. And he's like, nah, get it. So jumping into uh, Florida, 
Uh, November 12th, we've got a great curtain into Tweezer, into Keyboard Army. November 14th, as we're talking here, the Stash Teka. November 15th, uh, we have a really fantastic Mike's that I listened to about a week and a half ago for the first time. My thought initially was pretty standard second jam. I'm never going to be one to complain about a second jam. But man, when they fade out of the rock into this beautiful Mm. just string of blissful ambient type of playing, it's unbelievable, man. And then that fades into Life on Mars. That goes into Weekapod Groove. I mean, just great stuff. Um, What do we got next? November 18th. That is... um Number 18, is that from Charleston? Charleston, South Carolina. South Carolina, okay. 30-minute Brick House, you enjoy myself. That is a huge Brick House jam. The Commodore is coming right at you. Huge, huge, you enjoy myself. And then Paige's dad comes out for the encore. Whenever you see Paige's dad, you're always getting Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. Lots of fun. Good father-son jam. Uh, November 19th, the next night, Curtain to Tweezer and to Billy Breeds. Fascinating Tweezer. It's like funky. It has a midsection. It's kind of like it's got some clav funk. It's got some tray on the drum kit. It's kind of like a display of fish funk, but it's not cow funk. Like, in other words, it doesn't have the sensual wah wah grooves they got from 1997. But, you know, it's actually not entirely dissimilar from um, the funk from the Stash Tech from a few nights prior. Next, we've got. November 21st from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Huge show, huge second set. David Bowie, Take It to the River. David Bowie and an excellent Mike's Groove that has kind of like uh, the loud into quiet melodic jamming. And uh, we actually gave that the Fish Pandora treatment way back in episode 27. So go check that out. I listened to that second set for the first time the other day. um, And it's one of those reasons I keep listening to fish is that like, I'm always going to discover these shows. Like I, I relate this to the Bonner Springs 2000 show and the, uh, Irvine 10, five, 2000 show that we were talking about in our last episode. There's so many gems scattered across 1.0 that are worth hearing. Um, that show to me is a 1994 show through the prism of 1995 jamming, with a mm. focus on 1997 second set narr- narration, like within the second set, like the narrative arc of the second set. It's like a segue fest com- combined with this like arena rock 95 jamming combined with like, there was a moment where they go into suspicious minds and I was like, why yeah. would you play this right now? And then they go into a freaking jam off of it and it works perfectly. It's just like every choice that they make works really, really well within the flow of the show. I remember I had, a tape of that show back in 1995 and I did all my J cards on the computer and the font I gave to the J card in that show was like uh, was Arial Italicized which I kind of only reserved for the shows that I really enjoyed I like that I like that so finishing out uh, the month here November 22nd I got a 30 minute free with a jam that is extremely summer 1995 in a good way it's kind of like we were talking about here with the Orlando Stash it's picking up the uh, expansive jamming from summer and applying it to more melodic, lyrical type jamming. Uh, November 1995, uh, first Hampton show, 
wild and wacky mics, 30 minute mics with a rotation jam in the middle. Really good overall set list with a bunch of poor heart, uh, like versions just kind of scrapped out. Uh, similar to what you would hear with Dog Log a couple weeks later in Portland, Maine. Uh, Eleven twenty nine, a top ten possum and a fantastic you enjoy myself and finishing out November nineteen ninety five. It's a recent live fish release from November thirtieth at Dayton, Ohio at the Nutter Center. It's a balls to the wall hose tweezer. Great playing throughout. This almost feels like a December nineteen ninety five show. Dave and I have talked about this before. Yes, December nineteen ninety five talks on, or starts on December first. But really, November 30th is the first of December 95 show. So if you have not heard that, get that in your ears. Yeah, that came out actually about a little over a year ago for Live Fish. Because I yeah. remember when we recorded Beyond the Pond in Nashville, that had just come out. And I was lying on my motel bed awake listening to it, and you were passed out. So, <laughs> anyway. So on that note, let's go ahead and listen to some of the... Uh, Stash Manteca Stash Dogface Boy from November 14, 1995, University of Central Florida. Thank you. 
Yes. It was another 18-inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today. Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your step, son. A little, little extra pick-me-up. I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge, already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot. Do I get a division win this year? That remains to be seen, but there most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. That was a jam. That was a jam. Mm. Every time I hear it, it just like, it brings me back to the first time I heard it and being like, wow, fish can do this. This is incredible. Um, So we're trying to think about how to approach this jam from a thematic standpoint, because there's so much happening here. You know, this is like one of those classic fall 94 through fall 95 jams where you could just like pick out little chunks here. And then we played a pretty substantive section of that jam. And the thing that we kept coming back to was this idea of the band getting really quiet and then swirling and swelling noise and getting really quiet again and going into dog face boy and then coming out of it with another swell of noise, which is why we're talking about the quiet part loud. So to do this, um, I'm going to feature a band that we have talked about perhaps more than any other, not named the war on drugs or Neil young. And we're going to do it again here because well, Not only should you always be reminded to listen to Yola Tango, but they provide so many examples of quiet, methodical jamming into a loud, abrasive segment of music that we simply couldn't avoid them. We've touched on a number of classic albums from Yola Tango, and hell, we dedicated an entire episode to the band with author of Jesse Jarno. But to my knowledge, we've never focused on the album Painful from 1993, which provided something of a transformational breakthrough for the band. So two albums and three years removed from their folksy classic fake book. They finally had James McNew in as their permanent basis and were ready to explore further depths within their music and experiment as a trio as never before. From a comparison standpoint, this record is more aligned with 2000s and then nothing turned itself inside out. In 2018s, there's a riot going on more than most others in their catalog. One has to wonder what would have become of Yola Tango without this record. 
similar to Fish between 1995 and 1997, the shedding of their original sound, the dedication to expansionism over tinkering, the embrace of contrast in sound, it's all here. And all led to even more expansionism and more deeper creativity than they'd played with before. To note, this was their first record produced by Roger Mutno, who'd go on to produce a number of their future albums. And it was also their first album released on Matador, which helped to push them to even further distribution. Vocally, the dual lyricism of Georgia and Iris sounds fully formed here as the expansiveness on songs like Big Day Coming offers an echoing to Iris' vocals and creates a haunting quality, while, while the following song from a Motel 6, a song that couldn't be further from the former, here's Georgia's plodding recital fit, Iris' edge-like swells of driving guitar. There's an undeniable tenderness to this record that will forever shape the band's approach to songwriting going forward and deeply impact some of their best albums. Even when they go wild and experimental and noisy, there's always silence and beauty worth exploring. And yet, part of what makes the record so impactful for their career trajectory is the fact that it sounds almost fully realized from the moment you press play. Up to this point, Yola Tango Records had been full of good ideas, but lacking that big thematic edge and experimental push that would mostly define them from this point forward. Ultimately, this record shifted Yola Tango's abilities and prospects away from the simple idea of being a New York City indie rock band in the guise of late 1960s era Velvet Underground into something solely their own. Consistently shifting while remaining reliable in their output and focus on lo-fi experimentation and DIY production, they captured a sound on this record and have spent the last 30 years living in its head. So, we are going to play not one, but two tracks from Painful by Yola Tango. We're going to play the final come down of Big Day coming into the swell of noise on From Motel 6.
Brian, you know, I fucking love that record. There's times I think Painful is the best Yola Tango album. I mean, to me, it's between Painful and I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one. That's just... That's an amazing record. It was actually one of the first things I bought on vinyl after having it had it on CD for several years. And it was uh, a very worthy purchase. So in terms of things going from quiet to loud and quiet and back again, I'm actually going to talk about a band that's like Yola Tango. It's a legacy band, a different type of legacy band. Um, I'm going to talk about the band Deftones. They put out a new record this year called Ohms. And the song we're going to play part of it is uh, called Ceremony. So like I was saying, Deftones, they've been around for a while. That's how they got the legacy band status. I think they kind of formed as high school kids in Sacramento, California in 1988. But they didn't put their first record out until 1995 called Adrenaline. That's now as a sophomore in high school and really starting to listen to a lot of fish. But I kind of like the Adrenaline. I really like the follow-up record, Around the Fur, from 1997. And I think, at the time, their peak album, 2000's White Pony, I liked a lot, largely because uh, Tool's manager, James Keenan, was heavily featured on the song Passenger. And I kind of, Deftone's M.O. appealed to me, which is kind of can be summed up as atmospheric dude bro new metal. But they're sensitive dude bros. Like the front man, Chino Moreno, <laughs> he always makes a big deal of the fact that, you know, he's like a new metal guy, but he likes Morrissey, The Cure, and the Cocteau Twins, even more to metal bands. And this kind of bears itself out uh, in their choice of cover songs. Like they like covering the Smiths. And in addition to screaming, Moreno has a lot of ah vowels. They're kind of weird dudes. Like, there's a song in The White Pony called Knife Party. That's, I think it's supposed to be like an SM thing, but I guess it's like <laughs> allegedly inspired by uh, their drummer, Abe Cunningham, has like an extensive cutlery collection that he would take on the tour bus. I don't know. Plus, they have one guy in the band, Frank Delgado, whose only job is to provide like keyboards and atmospherics. I guess at a time, Deftones used to be called the Radiohead of Metal. I don't think anybody calls them that anymore, but you know, that's kind of what, sort of what they were going for. So my interest in Deftones kind of nosedived after White Pony as they kind of kept putting out records of varying quality. I was listening to them, not much stuck. They kind of had some varying production values. Some of the, the producers tried to make them overly like radio friendly and it kind of felt like a bit of a compromise. I'm still always impressed by the fact that, uh, you know, they put out a lot of records. They had their own festival. Uh, I think, like, Deus, Deus, uh, like, Deftones, like, Deus, Deus, Muertos, Day of the Dead, except for Deftones. They had a fan base that seemed impervious to new metal trends. You know, kind of definitely a band I, like, respected a lot without actually really loving them. But I've been really surprised as how much I've been enjoying the recent ninth studio album called Ohms, which actually came out and came out like about six weeks ago. This record's got like a razor sharp focus that seems to have been missing from the band for quite a while. I mean, it helps that it's produced by like the veteran metal guy, Terry Date, who in addition to producing, I think the first four Deftones albums, 
he was behind the boards, behind like Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, uh, Pantera Vocal Display of Power. So, you know, he knows how to make things sound. I mean, there's still Pud Pounders with a sensitive side. It's likely to pay thrash metal riffs as engaged in like shoegaze soundscapes with seagull sounds. Like there's a song on the record called Pompeii that decided to spell with like a J for some reason. And that's kind of always been their dichotomy. Is here's a song that's got like shrieking vocals, but it's got a break with seagulls and this like shoegaze, like M83 inspired, like keyboard wash. And then you've always got like the growly frontman Chuda Moreno. He's got his not so secret love of 80s British bands. And then the push and pull of uh, the metalhead guitarist Steph Carpenter, who plays a nine string guitar for some reason. I don't know why he keeps adding strings to his guitar, but if it helps him rock out, then so be it. And the first three songs in this album, they just kick ass with a directness and ferocity that I'm finding very welcome these days. Most of like the prettier stuff is kind of relegated to side B. But, I mean, the song we're going to play for you is Ceremony. I mean, the guitars, it's just, it's like a jackhammer sound. It's just very impressive that you're getting these like very melodic kind of sad vocals over this like jackhammer guitar. And then when Chino Moreno yells like, I'm leaving you tonight. That's kind of one of my favorite moments of rock and roll of the year 2020. I've been playing it very, very often. And it's impressive to me that I can enjoy a band this much on their ninth record. Almost to the point where I feel like I've got to go back and listen to the, some of their other albums to see if I was just unfairly biased against them. But uh, hat tip to our Osiris compadre, Stephen Hyden, who talked about this album with uh, his buddy Ian Cohen on IndieCast podcast. Uproxx kind of got me back and listening to it. And he was, he was right. It's very good. But they uh, certainly embody a loud, quiet, loud dichotomy. Well, let's listen to a bit of uh, the song Ceremony by Deftones. Surface bound by the 
album recommendations. Mm. So I got to be honest with you, BTP listeners. I've had a really hard time keeping up with new music throughout the last few months. Uh, Between work, podcasting, the general state of the world, and family, I've been pretty damn occupied. Guessing many of you have as well. More often than not, and certainly more often than any year since BTP launched, I've reached for a fish or a dead show when I needed something to listen to rather than a new album. Now, this has surely led to some great moments and discoveries. Editing 36 from the Vault has made me hear surrounding Dick's Pick shows uh, with more regularity and brought the brilliance of a singular show or run into greater context. And I listened to all of Fish's Fall 2002 or for the first time, plus some killer Fall 1995 shows I'd never heard. Here's looking at you, October 11th, 1995 and 11-21-95. But I gotta be honest, nothing beats a new album. That feeling from putting something on you've never heard before and it hitting you and transporting you, it's just, it's something else. It's still my favorite thing about compulsively listening to music and it's defined so much of this show and Dave's and my communication and friendship. The origins of this podcast are as much rooted in a love for fish as it is a commitment to introducing ourselves, each other, and our listeners to music outside the world of fish. So in late September, I really recommitted to diving back into new releases. I'll be honest, having a hard time listening to some of the great, all caps, great pre-pandemic releases because they just take me back to a world that I don't know when or how we'll ever get back to. And uh, part of the reason for diving into late September into new releases was because I knew that there was a ton I was missing from the last few months. Which brings me to the stunning new release from the Gun Trzinski duo. That is Steve Gunn and John Trzinski, the guitarist-drummer duo who plays spaced-out jams and melodically-driven excursions. One of those groups that if you had to define, quote, BTP music, it would be Fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> Their new record, Soundkeeper, is a must-hear and is on the short list of favorite records of 2020, which I, I think when we go back, we did our top 10 episode or top 10 albums of the year thus far in June, which is just crazy to think about. Like we had a stacked list that year or at that point in time, that <laughs> feels like a different year. And uh, taking those records with what I've been hearing this fall, it's going to be kind of an interesting, I don't know. This year is just such a wild mess. I don't know how, I don't know where this is going to fit, but this is definitely a, a huge record for me this year. It's been a huge amount of good music in 2020. I mean, for all it's of, one of the only good things yeah, that's happened this year for all the absolute fucking shit. It hasn't lacked for good music. I'm not in the yeah, best like frame of mind to listen to it, but it's there. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like to hear these records three years from now, because you know, whatever, quarantine records there are those are coming out in 2021 like the the records that we're hearing now in so many cases were recorded in 2019 or you know in early parts of 2020 um uh, yeah i'm right there with you man i mean it's it's all the more reason you always hear us say this but be buying your records on Bandcamp because you ultimately want to hear these bands continue to make music and the best way to do that is to support them. So if you've ever perused 
NYC Taper's site or listen to Jeff Conklin's Avant Ghetto radio show on WFMU or his new show, The Trailhead, you'll likely be familiar with the Gun Trzinski duo. They drift in and out of Steve's solo-type work, sans the Lou Reed lyrics, while allowing Steve to play with far more experimentation and color than he allows himself within his more structured tunes. All the while, Trzinski contrasts the soundscapes with lyrical drumming. It's just fascinating 9- to 12-minute long songs. On their fourth record here, Soundkeeper, the band best fuses their penchant for ambitious jamming and immersive soundscapes into a communicative statement which serves as a proper entry point or a further dive down the rabbit hole to their music. Like all their studio records and fantastic bootlegs, this record is best served you as a whole. Light a fire, crack a beer, pour a glass of bourbon, light a pipe, whatever works best for you. Sit back and soak it in. Songs like Pyramid Merchandise, with which Dave and friend of the pod, John McGar, were at. The performance of, as well as the title track, provide the most immersive and deeply engrossing experiences. But the whole thing is excellent. It's fitting for the time of year and the time of world history that we are in. Yeah, that's a fantastic record. That's, uh, I'll put it on your stereo lie on the floor and just let the sound wash over you type of record. It's completely different than Steve Gunn's like solo albums, but it's, it's really good. We talk about shoegaze a lot and beyond the pond. It kind of definitely has elements of like a shoegaze in terms of like the washes of sound, psychedelic noise that just come over. It's, uh, it's quite good. And I don't think I've come close to really, understanding it or diving into it as completely as I would like. I have to change that. So, but the record I'm going to talk about is, uh, sounds something like that. It's um, from a band that we've talked about a few times in the past in the podcast, Low Cut Connie. Uh, it's Adam Wiener's Mary Band. They just put out a new record called Private Lives. It's uh, two LPs. I guess it's considered a double LP because it uh, comes in just under an hour it's got 17 songs, comes on two vinyls. I don't know if that's considered like a double record these days. But, you know, at this point, we kind of know what to expect from Adam Wiener, which is he's the only constant member of the band aside from uh, the guitarist Will Donnelly. You get percussive piano stomp and rock and roll. It kind of splits them between Jerry Lee Lewis and Bruce Springsteen. Some ballast thrown for good measure. And on the opening title track, especially, and kind of an overriding theme of the album, you know, it's a celebration of those on the fringes of society kind of just doing whatever they can to make ends meet. The hustlers, if you will. Like, uh, as they say in the first song, the nanny who sells a little weed on the side. People like that. So, you know, Private Lives has got 17 songs. Loka Connie generally isn't a band that puts so much in the way of filler on their records. The hit-to-miss ratio here is extremely favorable. I think it's probably the best like produced album Wiener's made to date. It's got a really fantastic mix, emphasizes instrument separation between channels, live feel. I think it's probably the best distillation of what uh, the band does very well. I also have to note here that I don't think a single musician has turned pandemic lemons into lemonade better than Adam Wiener, who's essentially been throwing these awesome live streams from the living room of his apartment since April. I think since then, it's morphed into 
uh, like a Patreon of sorts under the title uh, called Tough Cookies. He's hosted a bunch of guests. He's played a bunch of shows. He even uh, held Kaddish for Ruth Bader Ginsburg in addition to performing socially distanced free shows for essential hospital workers in the greater Philadelphia area. He's really good at finding inventive ways of self-promotion like low-cut comedy, uh, low-cut comedy yarmulkes. And he kind of would appear to be a mensch in every sense of the word. It's always a good thing when your favorite musicians turn out to be awesome and decent people as well. I don't think anyone is dying to get back out on the road as much as Adam Wiener, but he's definitely making the best of the reality of the situation. And his new record's great. So uh, cheers. If you certainly liked Low Cut Connie in the past, the new record will give you more of what you crave. And they're uh, certainly one of the more fun exciting bands to me to come down the pike in the past few years. So check that out. All right, BTP listeners, we have an awesome contest to announce. Our sponsor, Sinlon, is offering listeners an exclusive prize, portable 5x7 roll of the best quality turf around. It's about the size of an area rug, but you can easily cut down any size. Sinlon is made in the USA with bio-based ingredients. It's environmentally friendly and highly durable. You can make great use of this roll, even if you're a city or apartment dweller. You come up with a whole bunch of fun ideas, and some of those are. Bring the outside indoors. Have an area for your kids to play. A spot for you to get the feel of laying in the grass as the weather turns colder and you're spending less time outside. Works as a grassy yoga practice or workout inside. Use it as a meditation spot. Place it below your sofa to rest your feet in the grass while you couch tour or binge watch Shit's Creek like I've been doing lately. You can easily pack it up and bring it camping for a nice grassy space to hang out at your campsite. Easy spot to take your dog out on a balcony or patio if the weather is bad. You just want to make sure you can throw in the rinse every so often. You can even cut it in the smaller patches and gift it to all your friends who could use a nice grassy spot to rest their feet indoors and reconnect the summer. It's also a cool idea for the holidays. I can say from experience, it feels very real and super soft and comfortable on bare feet. Sinlon will be giving away three of these 5x7 pre-cut rolls to our listeners. Visit sinlon.com slash beyond to enter and explore their site to buy it for yourself or as a gift. Sinlon can also customize and put it to your space, your home lawn, a commercial space like a playground, or even a classroom if you're a teacher and your classes are starting to meet again. I happen to love hitting golf balls off of them. Again, visit sinlon.com slash beyond to enter to win. The deadline to enter is December 9th. That is S-Y-N-L-A-W-N dot com slash beyond. B-E-Y-O-N-D. So in segment two, we wanted to focus on coming live from Florida. And we tossed around some ideas and we were kind of doing some searching and we found some good bands that we wanted to talk about, but we were ultimately thinking, you know what? There's an artist that we have never really focused on 
in the entire time that we've been doing Beyond the Pond. Maybe played a song here or there, mention here or there. We love this artist, but we've never really focused on him. And we figured since we're going to cover a jam from Florida that we've been circling for years and never covered, well, we might as well give a tribute to Mr. Tom Petty, one of the greatest American songwriters um, of in the entirety of classic rock and the writer of some of our favorite songs, some of your favorite songs, some of the best albums out there. The uh, big box set for Wildflowers just came out a couple weeks back. It's fantastic. It's November. So naturally that album just sounds like a flannel or a warm sweater for you on a Sunday afternoon. It's just great stuff. So we're both going to feature some slightly deep cuts that both mean a lot to us for uh, different reasons. So I'm going to talk about Tom Petty's 1985 record, Southern Accents, which came out about a week after I was born. I'm going to play the lead track off of this, Rebels, which is, you haven't heard this song, holy mm. shit. Um, so, like I said, you know, we don't talk about Petty all that much on this podcast, but we really wanted to here. So we're talking about Florida bands. There's no one to elevate Florida rock quite like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. The sixth record here from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Southern Accents, is about as big and wide open and Western tinged as one could be. While the album is best remembered for the huge single, Don't Come Around Here No More, it serves as one of the foundational pieces for bands like The War on Drugs and literally everything we love about big Vista records. Literally, though, throw this record on in your car, just start driving, and by the time you get to the first chorus in Rebels, your window will be down and you'll be fist pumping the world. Hey, 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 I was born a rebel. Okay. <laughs> That's when you hear rebels, you just got to scream. <laughs> yeah. Trap by Truckers oh. is an amazing cover of that song, too. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Holy shit, I got to hear that. Of note, Petty became frustrated with the production of the lead track, Rebels, and punched a wall in the studio, severely breaking his hand, requiring surgery and pins in his arm. This record was originally conceived as a concept record. Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics co-wrote three tracks on the album, which pushed it away from any sort of a concept. The album artwork is an 1865 painting of Winslow Horner, titled The Veteran in a New Field, which adds to the larger themes around post-Civil War Southern empathy and understanding, something that classic rockers seem strangely enamored with and a concept that just wouldn't and straight up doesn't fly in post-2016 America. Speaking of oddly placed Confederate sympathy by otherwise open-minded classic rockers, Garth Hudson, Robbie Robertson, and Richard Manuel of the band all play backing tracks on this record, while Robertson lends a hand as a producer. So why am I talking about this album? I do advocate you listening to it, even... Sans the weirdly tinged Confederacy empathy part of the album. Ultimately, this record has been largely forgotten in Petty's massive discography, as much of the late 80s were seen as something of a wilderness period for him outside of the performances with the Traveling Wilburys. Within four years, he'd release Full Moon Fever, which established him as a solo artist all before Into the Great Wide Open and his 1993 greatest hits. And of course, Wildflowers reconnected with him with a larger audience. 
I don't know if this is a great record, but it sounds like driving between LA and Vegas to me, to be in a part of the country where time has passed it by and the landscape controls all. I love that feeling. And I love that you can still find it here in America in 2020. And, you know, one thing I would say about that is like, it, it reminds me of the like fish jams from this period in 1995 and thinking about fish playing in Florida, thinking about petty coming from Florida and this kind of weird neck of the country, if you will, that, uh, somehow feels part and also distant from like the ideas that are in fish's music in 1995 and in petty's songwriting and recording here in 1985. More than anything though, petty reminds me of my dad. Having a five-year-old has me thinking a ton about the memories he's making right now and the role I have in his life at this point. I think about how every time I pick him up at school, he immediately demands that I put on the Grateful Dead and how when I would get in my dad's car, I was demanding he'd put on Tom Petty or Neil Young or Steve Miller's Wide River. It's a fucking classic. <laughs> I, can still see my <laughs> I can still see my dad when I hear these songs. It being fall, I've been listening to a lot of Wildflowers, like I said, and that record just makes me see my dad and my Uncle Bobby in their late 30s at my uncle's shop, playing music, drinking beers, hanging out, savoring life with their kids around each other. My uncle had passed away back in 2014, and I'm not sure I've experienced a bigger loss in my life outside of him passing, and I've lost a lot of people. Uh, I would have killed for him to meet my son and to hear him singing Neil and Bob tunes. Whenever I hear anything that Petty plays, I'm instantly brought back to his wood shop in northwestern Illinois, smoking pot at too young an age, and hearing songs that would stay with me forever. So, testament, I guess, to a rebel that I loved, my Uncle Bobby here. We're going to play Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Rebels off of Southern Accents.
So, Brian, like you were saying with the Southern accents, I'm actually going to talk about uh, the Deep-ish cut. It may have been a late single release. I'm not sure. It may have been like the fifth or sixth single off this record. Tom Petty, Love is a Long Road Off of Full Moon Fever. There was a girl I knew. This shit she cared about me. That's how that song starts out. He used to uh, open a lot of his concerts with it. And I actually read about a a review of that song on the All Music Guide that said it was kind of a stripped-down version of the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. And from kind of like the keyboards to the chords, I never thought of it that way, but it sort of kind of is. But... With regard to the album Full Moon Fever, um, it came out in 1989, and it's impossible for me to separate that album from my family life and the relationship between me and my dad, and it's probably Full Moon Fever is the first album I've unequivocally loved and still do to this day, and I'm not the slightest bit embarrassed about, as opposed to, say, Lives Throwing Copper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is a good record, don't get me wrong. I mean, but, you know, it doesn't yeah, yeah, totally. doesn't quite hold up like uh, like Full Moon Fever <laughs> does. So, like I said, it was released in 1989 when I was 10 years old. And if you grow up in New England with two parents and a younger sibling like I had, chances are you've gone skiing at least once. And my family, we lived in central Connecticut, and we took a lot of ski trips to the Berkshires, because the Berkshires are close enough that you can do it in one day, but it's got generally higher peaks and more snow than Connecticut gets because it's about like an hour north. And Full Moon Fever was our family ski trip album. I don't know how this came about, or even if my mom and dad are really all that into Tom Petty, but for some how it got into our car, we listened to it, and when the tape was over, it would flip itself. We'd all listen to it again. Nobody complained. And then when Into the Great Wide Open came out in 1991, we grandfathered that into a family ski trip album, too. So the ski trips had reduced themselves by the time, I think, his last great album being 1994's Wildflowers came out. My dad didn't like that one quite as much because it was a little darker, a little downbeat, and it didn't have the shiny... Some would say overwrought uh, production of the last two Petty records, both of which were produced by, of course, Jeff Lynn from uh, the Traveling Wilburys and Electric Light Orchestra, who had like a really glossy, very radio-friendly, but very crisp, very clean sound. I mean, I kind of think of Full Moon Fever into the Great Wide Open as of like one piece. And I mean, my God, Full Moon Fever, you want to talk about a record that has... It's got no bad songs, nothing skippable. I think it's 35 minutes long. I mean, some people have issues with their last song, Zombie Zoo, for some reason. I think it's great. I think it's a great way to close things out. But, I mean, that record, every lyric, every groove, every scratch is kind of like the closest I think I'll ever come to having a tattoo just on my arm. I can do the Hello CD Listeners like skit off like the back of uh, just at any time we'll be walking down the street and go, hello, CD listeners, which is uh, 
the Tom Petty skit, which he put in like like the middle of the record, kind of like calling out people who had uh, like copied the CD to a tape cassette, like bootlegged it. So <laughs> the funny thing is, I only saw Tom Petty live once. That was in 2010. He was touring behind his not very good back to basics blues record mojo, which is kind of the kind of record that people make when they run out of ideas. They got to make the back to basics blues record. And I went because I felt like I had unfinished business. I could not go my entire life without seeing Tom Petty live. My morning jacket opened. They were fucking awesome. And then Petty comes out with the Heartbreakers. They open with the song Listen to Her Heart. And the set was only 75 minutes long including the encore, which I thought was really weird for a headliner. I think it might have been because that was the tour when his uh, guitarist, kind of with the Heartbreakers, consigliere Mike Campbell, had collapsed from exhaustion. Maybe they were playing extra short sets. I don't know. The sound mix wasn't that great. He was fine. I'm glad I got to go, but the live experience of that show wasn't that great. I was kind of disappointed. But even that aside, I'm just glad I got to see him because I think like a lot of people of our generation who got to grow up and have like, you know, really good relationships with their parents, that Tom Petty was kind of uh, really cemented that. So when um, he died, what was it, like three years ago at this point in 2017? Yeah, it was, <clears throat> it was early October okay. 2017. Yeah, I uh, I was in my office and found that out and kind of started sobbing uncontrollably, which was kind of weird for my office mates. But that was uh, what the dude meant to me. So let's listen to Love is a Long Road. Third track in Full Moon Fever. Maybe not a crucial Tom Petty cut, but at all the same, one of my favorites. Let's play it. So thank you all so much for listening to these two episodes that we've done that have been slightly experimental, slightly different. We hope you've enjoyed them. 
you enjoyed the collaboration where you could hear kind of what we were talking about in comparison to what HF pod and under the scales was talking about as we tracked fall 2000 and November, 1995. Uh, we're going to go back to a bit of normalcy here uh, as we transition into December before we close out 2020. Got to do our top albums of 2020 episode, do a couple other special things and uh, we'll look forward to those. But uh, before then, wanted to track through the um, songs that we featured in this episode. So we were talking, of course, about the stash from November 14th, 1995 in Orlando, Florida. So in segment one, the quiet part loud, I played Yola Tango's big day coming into from a motel six off of painful. Dave played ceremony off of the Deftones ohms segment two coming live from Florida tribute to Tom Petty. I featured rebels off of Southern accents and, and uh, Dave featured love is a long road off of full moon fever. So just a reminder, you can always find us in social media, Twitter, underscore uh, at underscore beyond the pond one word spotify we have our master song list you can find on beyond the pond podcast songs to the extent that a song is available we talk about in this episode we will try to put it into the very extensive playlist as always spotify for sampling you gotta buy the shit out of things on Bandcamp, especially now more than ever Check out this podcast and the other fantastic podcasts of the Osiris Podcast Network at Osiris Media, which is osirispod.com. That's O-S-I-R-I-S pod.com. Leave us an iTunes review. We love to read them. We get a kick out of them. Anything to increase our visibility in Tim Cookland is welcome. Absolutely. So like I said, as you all know, we kind of gone in a different publishing structure here throughout the months of October and November. Thank you guys for being flexible. Thank you all for uh, hanging with us as we worked alongside of HF Pod and Under the Scales. Um, we're going to do some more traditional stuff here as we move into December before we celebrate the holidays. So keep an eye out. We're going to have some fun here. Um, really enjoy doing this every other Tuesday thing with you all. And it's been fun to kind of dive into a different direction here. So if you got to this point, we thank you very much for hanging with us. Come back in approximately two weeks. Hopefully uh, we haven't lost our heads too, too much. Hold hands. We will sing Kumbaya and fight fish myopia and go beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media and is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.